Welcome again to Profiles on Nantucket Community Television, Channel 18. I'm Charlie Walters. In its almost 200-year history, the Nantucket Athenaeum has had only nine library directors. The ninth and current one, Anne Scott, is with me here in the studio today, and she's here to tell us all things about the Nantucket Athenaeum. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Charlie. It's nice to be here. First, I mean, obviously the Athenaeum has done books all along, but it does much, much more than that at this point. And I, I went to your website this morning, mm -hmm. and it says 1,300 programs and classes every year. Now, that's about an average of four a day. Obviously, there are more in the <laughs> summer than there are in the wintertime. Uh, and they're not open 365 days a year. So uh, we're taping this in August. There's an awful lot going on at the Athenaeum today. Right. But why don't you talk about the offerings of the Athenaeum other than books? Yeah, those program experiences are really dynamic. And you're right, there have been books all along in the Athenaeum's history. There have also, there's also been programming in the Athenaeum's history as well. The Great Hall has a wonderful history of speakers and some programs that you might not have expected to have been held during that time. I, I mean, I think for me, libraries are really about librarians and the work that we do to connect people to information and books are a great resource for that. And there are many other resources. There's music, there's theater, there's art. You know, there are many classes and experiences. And I think most importantly, we connect people to other people. You know, whether that's through the imagination of an author or a musician, or, or someone who wants to talk about a topic that's meaningful to them. That's really the approach. That's, that's my approach and the approach of many of my colleagues that work for public libraries. And we're incredibly lucky right now to have a team that is really enthusiastic about that. We have we have some staff um, that have been with the Athenaeum for quite a while. And we also have some new staff with new ideas. And, uh, and that's exciting. It's really exciting to foster and watch the kind of experimental programming that's happening at this time. And by that, I just mean that we can try things on. And I think that may be why you see such a variety, because there are lots of kinds of things we would like to try to see whether or not they attract an audience. Um, in a way, it's sort of like market research. Well, if you go to the Athenaeum's calendar, say in July and August, mm -hmm. it's amazing how much stuff is, is going on. And even in the wintertime, it's not a blank page when you go to the calendar. There, there are still things, not as many things, but still things going on. But, but let, me, let me zero in on a couple of these things. When you say music, you have concerts, of course. Right. Um, you have a guy who comes back most summers uh, 
Is his name Scott Billington? Millington, who gives harmonica courses. Oh, we just had a harmonica yeah, class. Yeah, that right? was the fellow. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but of course, you can get a CD. Right. You can take out a CD the way you would take out a book. And with books, it's not just the printed material you have. You also have audiobooks. Right. We do have audiobooks, and we have a digital collection as well. And how does that work? That works just like you check out a physical book with your library card, except it gets downloaded onto your device to be borrowed mm -hmm. for a period of time. You don't have to bring it physically back to the library. It just gets returned. Right. <laughs> Self-destructs, exactly. <laughs> and if, if there's a book, let's say you want a, a book, a printed book, and the Athenaeum does not have it, you can get them from another library, correct? Right. We're part of a consortium, and um, it's a really great resource, and CLAMS is what it's called. It's and, very appropriate. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, we can reach out to other libraries and have those books delivered. When I first arrived here, I hadn't really thought about how that works on an island. How do we get those books from other libraries and realize that they come via ferry and, you know, wider, water resistant mm -hmm. pouches and quite different from <laughs> the courier systems on land. You also have lectures, and there's a series that's been here for a number of years, the Geshki Lecture Series. Yes. Tell us about that. Geshki Lecture Series was um, begun with some help from Nan and Chuck Geshki, who are great friends and supporters of the Athenaeum, and a matching national endowment for the arts grant. And the idea was to you know, really develop and build on the history that the Athenaeum already has of bringing great thought leaders to the island and creating experiences for the community to broaden knowledge. I think we're always looking at empowering folks with new ideas. And, uh, and we can also talk about some ideas that not everyone agrees on and do that in a way that promotes civil discourse and hopefully, you know, the vision is to reduce some of the polarization that happens when we become so siloed from each other. Speaking historically, who has spoken in the Great Hall? <laughs> well, you know. Um, Going as far back as you want to go. Sure. I mean, I think we love talking about Frederick Douglass having, having spoken mm -hmm. at the Athenaeum um, more than once. And I think what some people don't know is that Douglass and Mariah Mitchell, the Athenaeum's first librarian, had a beautiful friendship that existed right up until the time Douglass passed away. And she actually traveled to see him during that time. And uh, that, I think, is um, really interesting history because it's not something that you typically find when we're hearing about the different speakers at the Athenaeum. Um, I used to you know, joke that it's, that's a hard act to follow, Mariah Mitchell, because, <laughs> <laughs> right, she and uh, Douglas 
you know, gain this world renown about the same time. They were both shooting stars and, and they had this common ground in astronomy because of the North Star and the passage of so many enslaved people who were following that mm. astronomy. So I think that was maybe part of the original link between the two of them. Now, she was the, she became librarian here prior to becoming famous as an astronomer. And she was how old when she took that job? 18. <laughs> and be, well, prior to that, she had also begun a school. She before had, she was 18. Bef before, yes, before she was hired by the Athenaeum, she had begun a school. And she was um, a little bit controversial because her school was open. Um, she really encouraged children of all backgrounds to attend. And I think she ruffled some feathers in a good way. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the Great Hall a moment ago where... Douglas and many others have mm -hmm. spoken. Uh, but the Great Hall isn't just about its speakers. Uh, a lot of the Athenaeum's artwork can be seen in the Great Hall. For example... Well, that's true. Lots of portraits and, I mean, even beyond the portraits that have been um, restored recently with the help of the Nantucket Community Preservation Grant. You know, we have some curiosities because when we first began, before we were a public library, there were proprietors who owned shares of the Athenaeum and, and collected not just art, but just curiosities from around the world. And at, at one point when the NHA formed, a good deal of that collection went you know, into their hands for preservation and to share with the community. Um, but we still have a, we still have our own special collection, you know, including some documents in the vault and items that we like to share with people. Um, a really good place to learn about all of those items is on the Athenaeum's podcast. And we we just have some brilliant folks working in reference who do their best to tell those stories. And, you know, whether it's around the art or whether it's around some of those pieces that we preserve, whether it's around um, some of the digitization that we're doing of welling logs. Um, they all, all of those items contain wonderful stories. And I think that's the piece that you really get when you walk into the Athenaeum and begin asking questions or having a conversation with someone who works every day in the Great Hall and is surrounded by all of this history. Those proprietorships lasted, I think, into the 1980s. And um, I, I actually bought a proprietorship. You could walk in, I think it was for $50. Mm. And they would give you a sheet of paper saying this, this is proof that you are a proprietor of the Nantucket Athenaeum. Um, it didn't mean that much. Um, but then they stopped it. I, I'm pretty sure it was sometime in the 1980s. So 
I guess there are no proprietors at this point. Or do I have that wrong? No, I mean, technically there are no proprietors, but it is an interesting question because we do rely really heavily on the friendship of people who support us through, through their time and through their talent, but also through their treasure and through their willingness to support the work that we're doing. And while they're not technically proprietors, um, they are, are good patrons, right, who, who recognize that unlike most public libraries who receive their funding from a municipality, um, we get a small portion of our operating budget in that way. From the town of Mandan. From the town and other sources, and we have to raise 75% of it every year, and, mm. and we couldn't do it without them. Well, this is an un my understanding is it's an unusual arrangement. You're, you are a private institution, and yet... Operating as. Right, and that has to be voted on at town meeting. It, you wouldn't get that money were it not for the approval of the voters. But is that, you know a lot more about libraries than I'll ever know. Is, is this, how rare is this to have a private institution? Oh, it's rare. Really? It's, it's rare. I mean, I, I, I can't say with 100% certainty, but I don't know of another private organization that operates as a public library. And in order to call oneself a public library, we do have to receive a certain amount mm -hmm. of funding. Well, there is no from the public. This is the only library. How do I want to phrase this? Because Mariah Mitchell Association has its own library and so on. But th there really is no public library in the traditional sense of that term on Nantucket. The Athenaeum is it's kind of a hybrid, isn't it? A hybrid of... Public and private. I would just say structurally, uh, yes, private. But for all intents and purposes in terms of how we, how we operate, mm -hmm. we're all public library. There's, and the, the people who support us and our trustees who make some big decisions aren't making decisions around operating, right? So the way they impact how we operate as a public library is by choosing their director. And I have their support in making the choices that affect us on an everyday level and, and how we serve the community. Of course, they have input. So, but they've hired you to do a job, and they're not micromanaging you. They're they're they they're not micromanaging. Yeah, I mean, they they chose you because they don't for for many reasons, I'm sure, but in part because they know you can do the job, and they stand back and let you do it. They do, and I, you know, I have to say that can be rare as well. I think that, you know, in a lot of, well, so many libraries are struggling with this issue right now, right? Because 
people who um, fund you or determine what your budget looks like have a lot of power. And that power could be misused. And I think there are communities now where council members or commissioners have their own opinion about what should be in the library, what materials, mm -hmm. what programs should be happening and consider themselves to be an expert maybe on what morality. Mm -hmm. So, and they are having an impact. They're having an impact because they um, can choose to fire a director who, you know, is resistant to those changes. I'm assuming that's not been an issue here, certainly not in my lifetime, to my knowledge. No, I, I mean, I, I haven't heard of that history here at all. And I just, my own personal experience of the Athenaeum in particular and of its board is that it's a very healthy board, a very productive board, um, a very supportive board. And I learned that very early on because I arrived six months before the Athenaeum had to close its physical doors <laughs> for the pandemic. And I learned very quickly how much faith they put in my decision-making. And it was a lot. You know, I walked with them through every step, um, really talking through where I was getting my information, why I thought these would be good decisions to make. And maybe, you know, occasionally, Someone would say, well, I don't, I don't think we should do it that way. But ultimately, that same person would turn and say, but it's your decision. Mm -hmm. We support your decision. Some of my colleagues in public libraries did not, um, did not experience that. And that's hard on an organization. Well, as a member of the public, it's good to hear that because they're offering you input, but they're not giving you orders. They're not dictating what you do, mm -hmm. which in theory And why is, would they want to? Well, I was, yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> I mean, you're, that's your job. They've hired you to mm -hmm. do, to make those decisions and to carry them out. Right. I want to pick up more on COVID, but let's, let's step back. Um, I'm curious how you got to Nantucket. First of all, where did you grow up? I grew up in an area known as Red Clay, Georgia. It's an, it was an unincorporated part of the state in the upper northwest corner, about as close as you can get to Tennessee. Where was the nearest library? The nearest library was maybe half an hour away. Not, okay. too, not too far away. And how long did you stay there? How long did I live in that area? How long did you live in Red Clay? Oh, well, until I graduated from high school. 
And then, where did you <laughs> then, go? I, then I took off. <laughs> then I took off. Um, I've had a lot of interest along the way, too. I mean, before I entered into the realm of public libraries, I would say that I didn't really have that specific intention growing mm -hmm. up, mm -hmm. but I did have a real love of literature. I did immerse myself in books. I was that kid that went to the library and came home with as many as they would let me carry out. And books were a solace for me and very, you know, expansive. But I also love philosophy, psychology, theater. I'm a huge music lover, as you know, yes, as yes. well. And when you have a lot of interest as a young person, it's hard, I think, to um, sometimes find a clear direction. It's not a straight line. But I was always helping um, in libraries when, whenever I could. I would volunteer as a child. I got sent to the library when I finished my work and everyone else was still working. They'd say, go water the plants in the library or go help straighten the books. And I was a research assistant at one point. And, um, and then when I, I moved to Florida to the Tampa Bay area and there helped care for a grandmother who was very close to me. But when I first arrived, my first stop was, where's the nearest library? I wanna go get my library card. And I went in and there was a notice hiring a part-time library clerk. And the rest is history. I had a really great director so eventually you became a, li a librarian mm -hmm. in that area? Yes, in, in, in that area. I had been working there for a while, kind of moving up in levels of responsibility. And an assistant director was on his way out. And my director said, I, I really want you in this role. And I really want to encourage and support the formal education of librarians. It's, it was important to her. And so she, I went back and got my master's in, in library science. And what was your next stop? So I, had, I was <clears throat> there for 15 years in Florida and learned quite a lot. And then I was offered a position in the Rockies um, in a town called Basalt in the Roaring Fork Valley of Colorado. Basalt, half an hour from Aspen, um, another seasonal community, another area of great beauty, but different from Nantucket in some ways. And very different from the Tampa Bay area. Oh, so different. Warm sea level to uh, were you, were you at least a mile high in basalt? I've driven through there. It's, it's pretty high. It is pretty high. And um, <clears throat> traveling around the area, you get even higher, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I would say, you know, more than that difference, when I was working in Florida, I was working for a community that had um, been labeled as blighted. 
And there were lots of homeless people coming in. And there were a lot of mental health issues to deal with on a daily basis. And it was a very transient community. So the work was, the work was different and different in that the needs were different. We're always trying to suss out what does the community need right now. And in a lot of ways, we always do our best to reflect that community in our collections, our programs, in who we choose to bring on in our staff. You know, we want people to be able to see themselves reflected in our staff as much as possible and foster that sense that they belong. So libraries aren't, you know, one size fits all. When I was in Florida, I started a, a farmer's market that ran every week there and contained a good deal of um, nutrition literacy kind of built into that market. It was really needed there. And when I moved to Colorado, somebody said, are you going to start a farmer's market? And I said, I, if the community <laughs> needs a farmer's market, but I don't suspect that that's, we're, we're going to have the same needs here, right? And in, in Not fact, in the Rocky Mountains, I wouldn't think. They already had a farmer's market. Oh, they did? They already had a great farmer's market. They, well, there were other things there that were important. <clears throat> well, this fascinates me because you went from hot, sea-level, urban mm. to tiny town, Rocky Mountains, snow everywhere for at least part of the year. Um, had you sought out that kind of a change or was it the job, the particular job that attracted you to that? I think these changes... Seek I mean, this, me out. I, this, is, <laughs> you know? this is a big change. It is. Never mind the fact that it's what two thousand miles or something. Right, and yeah, I don't think that I, um, I, I, I never really expect for something to be as challenging as it may turn out to be. I have. A good deal of confidence in my ability to adapt to a lot of different situations, and I and I I guess I do have a bit of an adventurous spirit, and I was ready for a change. I had family pass away, and I wasn't really limited in terms of where I could travel anymore. I could, I could embrace a big change, and it was good for me. It, was, it, was, it, it did have some challenges, but the one thing that it taught me was the importance of really immersing ourselves in our communities, and it grew my faith that I can anchor in pretty quickly because I love people and I love learning about people and every community has been unique. And yeah, it was, it was a big change and a big challenge and very worth it. How long did you stay in Colorado? I was there for two years and I would Just have been- two years? Yes, and I would have been there longer. I loved, I really loved being there. Um, however, 
a friend reached out to me and said, there's this opportunity that you might want to take a look at because you might be a very good fit for it. Meaning Nantucket. Meaning Nantucket. So another huge change. <laughs> another long move. I had friends that were going, what, what, what are you, really? <laughs> and then to make full circle, you get here and six months later, COVID hits. Now, had you been to Nantucket before you started the job? I hadn't really spent any time. And actually, mm -hmm. when I came out to meet trustees, I had some travel issues. And I had maybe, I think, maybe six hours of free time to explore. And I... I walked around the cultural district, and um, it just felt, it felt right. Felt different, I'm sure, from Tampa Bay and the Rockies. <laughs> <laughs> it did feel different. And I don't know, I guess that's just, um, sometimes I see it as, I did some good things in the Tampa Bay area that I'm really proud of. I feel like I made a real contribution to that community. I feel like I helped um, bring positive change. And I do feel like librarians are positive change agents in a way. And I feel the same way, even though I was in Colorado for a short time, there were some major projects that we worked on and um, I was able to accomplish a lot in a short amount of time. And I feel like I was needed here for some reason. And maybe, you know, maybe there's just a little bit of magic in that, if you believe in that sort of thing. Synchronicity as opposed to coincidence maybe? Mm -hmm. uh well, when you started the job and COVID hit, um, I don't know how many people you would have gotten to meet in that space of time, but it must to, oh, to move totally. to a tiny town you never <laughs> moved, you never lived in before, and all of a sudden you're confined to your your wherever you live. Um, I would think that would be very difficult. It was very isolating. Would you go to, into the building to work, or would you work from home, or, or both? I went into the building. Even when it was closed? I, oh, yeah, even when it was closed. Well, there were some of us, and, and more of us as time went on, that were in the building. Uh, but there was a great deal of time when I was working from home. And I always say that the real positive side of that you know, despite how isolating it felt, was that it really um, drove me even more to connect with my staff. And as a leader, it takes, it takes time to get to know your staff in a way that you know how they're gonna be in a crisis. Mm -hmm. Like I know I can ask this person to take care of this and this person's going to need a little bit of this. You, you know them, you've spent time sure. with them. 
that wasn't the case here. I had a <laughs> sort of a broad yeah. view and had spent some time talking with them, but this, and we spent some time on the phone. I spoke to my team leaders regularly and talked through situations and also just connected as much as possible on a personal level. And you can't go through that kind of thing with a group of people or people and not come out the other side of it with either a stronger relationship or a relationship that is obviously not working. How big is your staff? We're, we have around 23, I guess, something really? like that, that. That big? Yeah. And how long was the building closed to the public? You know, this is a really tricky question for me that I'm happy to talk about. <laughs> That's not why I asked it. <laughs> I, no, no, I love that it's tricky. The reason that it's tricky is because I don't feel like we were really closed. Our doors were closed for a year. Okay, but, but we, there were still things going on. We were serving um, the public in yeah. a lot of ways and... A lecture might be on Zoom and not in the Great Hall, for example. Right, or somebody might deliver a bag of books to your door. That's right, you were delivering books. And then there was the vestibule. And then there were the... The vestibule. The, in the vestibule, uh, folks could pick up their holes. Oh, I see, okay. We developed that a system for that, so we could just... Mm -hmm. People could sort of curbside, you know, pull up to the curbside and... So, so you were functioning all along. But how long was it until the building was open in its entirety? It was, well, a year, after a year we opened the doors and we opened very quietly. And with masks. And with masks. And when I say very slowly, um, it, was, it was really intentional for, for me and my staff because there were staff members who were ready to go. Like, let's let's do this. Let's open the mm -hmm. door. We need to have people back in. And there were some staff people who were more concerned. You know, is this the right timing? Is this the right thing to do? And we wanted to move forward in a way that we wouldn't have to roll back, mm -hmm. right? That we yep. could continue. Because there's so much confusion around yeah. backwards and forwards. Yeah. And I feel like as hard as it was for a lot of directors going into the pandemic, I saw more job shifts and more people leaving positions hmm. during the reopening. Hmm. That's interesting. And I had a lot of pressure to announce or to give someone an answer. I think there was an article published somewhere. The title was, When Will the Athenaeum Open? And, and I, I wouldn't say because I really wanted the opportunity to stand out front on the steps and say to people, the door's actually open if you would like to go inside. Well, what a reflection of the importance of the Athenaeum to the community that you would see a headline in a publication. Yes, 
Yes, of when course. When is it going to reopen? Mm -hmm. Everyone was wanting to know. And once we started doing that and letting people kind of trickle in, seeing what the flow looked like, seeing, experiencing people with masks, we let more and more people come in. At first we were counting, but it wasn't long. It was, I'd say, six weeks maybe that we were more fully open. Mm -hmm. But I really loved, I didn't expect, you know, the response that I would get. It was, I remember it was spring and it was one of those supernatural springs here where it's <laughs> We don't like get many of those. <laughs> twinkling. The weather was absolutely beautiful. And standing on those steps, inviting people in, I'll never forget it. Well, we do get more nice springs in recent, have had more yes. nice in recent years than we used to. It used to be winter and then it was summer. But um, climate change is changing a lot of things, which leads me to my next question. Uh, COVID was obviously a big challenge for the Athenaeum. So are rising seas. And you have been spearheading awareness of this in the town. I've been spearheading yes. awareness. I think well, a lot of people have, but you're yeah. you're certainly one of them. Was I, I can I can testify to. But you're you're a block away from the harbor. Uh, you are slightly higher up than than other neighbors of the harbor, but uh, you're you're paying close yeah, attention. We've noticed. To this. We've noticed we're a little higher. <laughs> But you're paying close attention to this oh, yeah. with good reason. We are paying close attention. I mean, there, there are multiple issues that we've got our eye on, you know, whether it's the, the growth in the community and the, and the changes that are happening there. But then, yes, on a more fundamental level, what's the Athenaeum going to, you know, what are we going to look like in... We can speculate how many years, but I think it's important that something is happening, right? Even if just initiating the conversation yeah. around it, looking at what other organizations are doing, talking about you know what we've had evaluated, um, considering what our approach might look like. What's it going to mean for our materials and our services? And will we be able to use that lower level? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So we need a lot more information. And I think that's what's important. That I think feel like we're all initiating that discovery, learning as much as we can about what this is going to look like and what we need to do. You know, I think the big hurdle for everyone, I mean, this is true in the housing, right? Because we recently purchased housing. We had to. Yeah. We had to. We wouldn't have a library staff, really, without the housing. It has made a huge difference in our ability to retain and attract great talent. Well, I'm sure. You're, you're very fortunate to have it. The stumbling block if you want to call it that. I mean, I think the reason why, you know, we all move toward those solutions a little bit 
more slowly is because they're expensive problems, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to take a lot of resource to address the issue. Well, we've talked about this before, and even if you knew how you're going to address it, where does the money come from? Mm-hmm. And if you, even if you had the money, how do you spend it? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a uh, it's a problem for the ages down here, and it will always be one. It's not the seas aren't suddenly going to unrise; mm-hmm. they're going to gradually. Well, they are already gradually and have been for a long time mm-hmm. um, creeping up. And I mean, something has to be done, and you don't want to kick it down the road and let your, your successors yeah. do it. That's no good either. But it's uh, and we you, rely on so much support, right? We rely on support. Seventy-five percent of our support comes from private yeah. donations for our uh-huh. operations. Mm-hmm. We rely on support to help pay for this housing. You know that we are. We, we ask, and, and this is another big ask that at some point it's, it's going to have to be addressed. Now the Athenaeum's 200th anniversary comes up in 2034. Is this way too far ahead of time to be asking what you might be doing? Yes. yes. <laughs> I had to ask. When you're that close to that anniversary, I had to at least well, ask. Well, and you know, no, not completely. It's not too much to ask. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, we built our new summer fundraising model around celebrating what the Athenaeum it has at its core, what it does best, um, why we're here, what makes us special. We'll, I'm sure do more of that, but specifically what that looks like, I think, um, is going to be informed by the years also in between mm-hmm. now and then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this may be a very different island in 11 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it is or not, we need to be prepared for it. Right. One last question before we go. Mm-hmm. What do you do when you are not at the library, when you're not working? I spend as much time in nature as possible, and I spend as much time surrounded by good music as I can. Um, I yeah, since well, one of the things that I started when I arrived here was just taking some singing lessons with the brilliant Greta Feeney and. Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of things that um, grow out of being isolated, too. I think you start to understand what you need to sustain yourself. Of course, a good book. And (laughs) and I like to keep a book of poetry around. And I also like to keep a book of um, just philosophical reflection around. And then I love good fiction too. And um, it's great to be able to immerse oneself in a good story. And I, I think that it's, um, it's also good for our mental health. And so many studies show that reading can really change your brain in profoundly positive ways, like meditation, which I also 
like to make part of my regular day. And Scott, thank you for doing this. Thank you for thank you for asking. Thank you for having get, me. I should let you get back to work. This, this, <laughs> this a is lot. a work day for you, and it's a very it's a, I call this a beautifully full day. <laughs> and we started the day at twelve o'clock, so I've interrupted your lunch hour. So I, I especially appreciate your coming in to do this show. Thank you. We're going to get ready for a Geshki lecture series next. Uh, well, then carry on. Yeah. Thanks again. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Charlie. For Nantucket Community Television, Channel 18 on Profiles, I'm Charlie Walters. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll tune in again.